Good morning. My name is Phil Comstock. Would you please stand with me as we read scripture? Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Did he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you as we are just about a week away from Christmas Day, as hard as it is for us to believe. It was wonderful to be able to sing those Christmas songs with you this morning. We are so glad that you have joined us in worship today. My name is Dave Hahn. I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and I am privileged to be able to open God's Word for you today. Pastor and author Charles Spurgeon, who we mention a lot, was seeking to help illustrate the difference between faith and good works. And in doing so, he shared a story of two men who were caught in severe rapids, carried swiftly downstream and headed towards perilous rocks and waterfalls. And then a man on shore attempting to rescue them threw out a rope. One man of the two reached for that rope, grabbing hold of it, while the other man, in a panic, grabbed hold of a log that was floating next to him. The first man, obviously, was saved and brought ashore because he was tethered to the one who was on land and free from danger, while the second man perished because he grabbed hold of something that was in just as much danger as he was. Faith, Charles Spurgeon observed, is like grabbing the rope from the shore. In that, it is our saving connection to Christ. Good works, on the other hand, is like grabbing hold of a log, carrying us to our certain doom. Now certainly no illustration and no metaphor is perfect, this one included, but it's obvious what the point is. And today's passage, as Phil read for us, is a warning to a church who had both a rope and a log before them, one leading to eternal life and the other to spiritual death. And the same warning is relevant to you and I today. Let's look again at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
So Paul begins this section with some really hard and direct words for the Galatian church. And he began this letter, honestly, with similar language, but he kind of dialed up the intensity a little bit here in chapter 3 by calling them fools, by calling them bewitched. In fact, one translation says it this way, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Now it is... A little hard to imagine a pastor today referring to their congregation as fools or as idiots. And I think that there are a lot of reasons for that. But I think it's important to understand that this kind of language can be born of deep, deep love. And that it is sometimes necessary to use language like this because our eternity with God is on the line. In the same way that a parent sometimes rebukes their children or a teacher sometimes gets angry with his or her students or anyone in authority sometimes needs to get the attention of those that they have been given charge over. In each case, assuming a pure heart, it is love that motivates a rebuke, discipline, or a hard word. And to love someone does not mean that we're always going to make that person feel good. Rather, it means that we are going to consistently will and choose the eternal good of that person. That we are going to consistently will and choose the eternal good of that person. Even if, even if they don't see our efforts as such. Now it is clear that Paul had spent much time demonstrating his love and concern for the Galatians as he lived among them, both evangelizing to them and then planting churches in their region. And as such, Paul had earned the right to say difficult things to them. And we need to do the same. Because true family and true friends tell one another the truth in love. True family and true friends tell each other the truth in love. But in order to be able to confront or rebuke or correct a brother or sister in Christ, we too need to have earned the right to do so. We need to have earned the right to do so through having made evident our love and our concern and our care for that person. Conversely, if the bulk of the time that you spend with someone or the majority of the words that you share with them are marked by criticism or correction, you should expect for it to go badly and for it to be poorly received. Paul, having shown deep love and concern for the Galatian church, afraid for their souls and their spiritual walk with Christ, sought to get their attention with this impassioned plea that begins chapter 3. Simply put, Paul could not believe what had happened among the Galatian believers. And he was looking for a way to understand it, to make sense of it. In our modern terms, Paul was asking the Galatians, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Have you lost your minds? Now he's using 
hyperbolical and satirical language to make his point. He knew them well enough to know that they had the mental and the moral capacity to be able to understand the gospel. So he doesn't mean fools in that they could never attain that. And he knew that in all likelihood, no magic spell had actually been put upon them. And that is why their abandonment of the gospel made no sense to him. Paul was gobsmacked because he could attest to what they had seen and what they had heard because God used him personally to show them and to tell them. He knew what they knew. He knew what they heard because he told them. And ultimately, what it was that they knew and what it was that they had heard was Christ crucified. That's what they heard. That is what they knew. And that is what they had come to believe. But the event of the crucifixion itself was not the main idea of what Paul had shared with them because the act, the event of crucifixion, was not unusual during this time and place, the way that it would be to you and I. It is estimated that Rome crucified upwards of 150,000 people during their reign and during its empire, including inside of Israel. And Jesus was just one of those 150,000 people. So almost certainly what Paul had shared with the Galatians was why the cross needed to happen. What was accomplished in it and the significance of it all. Not just that Christ was crucified, not just that Christ died, but that he died for you. He died for you and your sin. That's what Paul shared. And my friends, the why and the what of the cross of Christ is central, central to Christ's salvation. And that was what the Galatians had forgotten, even though Paul had vividly and publicly portrayed it to them. Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified before you. It was as though Paul had put a cross-shaped bat signal into the sky that was so big and so bright and so clear that no one could have missed it. And yet somehow it seemed as though they had. Moving on to verses 2 through 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul had entered into a logical argument with his readers, highlighting the distinct purposes of the law and grace, of faith and good works. And here's what's so fascinating about the argument that Paul had made. See, Galatia was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, those who were given the law of God and those who were not. And what was happening in the Galatian church was that a group of proclaimed Jewish Christians called Judaizers were trying to convince Jews and Gentiles alike that while faith in Jesus was valid, Jewish law and tradition needed to be followed as well. Grace and law commingled. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, plus the law and its practices and its rituals. And that, my friends, is not the gospel. 
That is not the gospel. As one commentator observed, what Paul is getting at in this section is that the whole Christian way is supernatural from start to finish. But the Jewish path, regardless of how it began, had become thoroughly naturalistic. The Christian way is supernatural. And when we add works and we add the law and we add ourselves to it, it becomes naturalistic. I once heard a pastor explain the absurdity of what the Judaizers were teaching and the Galatians were adhering to in this way. So imagine that the law of God is a suit of clothes and that faith is an entirely different suit of clothes and that God gave both of them in his grace with the intent of clothing his people in his righteousness. But for some time, all of mankind was without any spiritual clothing to put on. And then one day, in his great love, God chose a people for himself and gave them his law, that first suit of clothes for them to wear, while the rest of the world remained unclothed, spiritually speaking. Over time, due to their sin and rebellion against God, the clothing God gave his people grew quite worn and rather tattered. And so, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, and in him, through love and grace, a brand new suit of clothes was given. But this set of clothes, this set of clothes, unlike the first, was available to all people through faith in God's Son. And the command God gave in gifting mankind this new suit of clothes was simple. Jews were to take off their old clothes and put on the new. And the Gentiles, those without clothes, simply just needed to get dressed. Jews needed to take off the old and put on the new. And Gentiles just needed to get dressed. Jew and Gentile alike, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, by grace and through faith, not by works. But when the false teachers in Galatia came along, commingling law and grace, two different suits of clothes, and teaching that Jesus plus the law and plus works made one righteous before God, the believing Jews in Galatia began putting on their old clothes over the top of the new. And the believing Gentiles started putting on clothes that never belonged to them in the first place. And in so doing, both showed themselves to be fools. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying to the Galatian church, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have been given a brand new set of clothes that make you righteous and will never wear out and will never fade and will never tarnish. So why on earth would you ever put on the old over the top of the new? If you are a Gentile or a non-Jew in this room, understand this. 
And this may honestly be the first time you have ever heard this, but it is true nonetheless. The law is not for you. It never was. It never has been. The law was given to Jews, not to the Gentiles. And yet, countless numbers of us try to obey it, believing that it can and will make us righteous when it cannot and it will not. The primary purpose of God's law for the Gentile is to show you how incapable you are of living up to God's standards. And once the law convicts you of sin and your need for a savior, it has done its only job. The law's job is to convict you of sin and your need for a savior. And when it is done so, it's done. God never gave Gentiles the law as a means of righteousness, but rather as a mirror to help you see your unrighteousness and your need for Christ. And if you happen to be a law-abiding Jew in this room, God's call to you is similar. Take off the old. Put on the new. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly on your behalf and accomplished what you never could. So leave the law and works-based righteousness behind. Remember, my friends, as believers, we have been crucified with Christ and we are dead to the law. Every believer, Jew and Gentile alike, dead to the law, alive in Christ. And we are to live instead by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Because the law cannot make, nor has it made, anyone righteous in the sight of God. And it will not cause the Spirit of God to rest upon or indwell you. Only grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone can do that. So why on earth would we ever abandon the Spirit of God which gives life for the letter of the law that only brings death? Why would we do that? Looking at verse 4, Paul says, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? My friends, the scriptures say that without the Spirit of God living in you, you are not and cannot be a son or a daughter of God. Without the Spirit of God, you are not a son or a daughter of God. And by the Spirit of God, we have all experienced the miraculous in our own lives and or in the lives of those around us. And we have also known varying degrees of difficulty that come with bearing the name of Christ. And so it was among the Galatians. We know, thanks to Acts chapter 14, that Paul and Barnabas saw miracles and were persecuted in Galatia. Yes, they saw miracles. Yes, they experienced the blessing of knowing God in and through his Son by the Spirit of God, but they also knew persecution. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says that in Galatia, unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. 
and left the cities and the synagogues in Galatia that Paul taught in extremely divided. In verses 8 through 18 of Acts 14, we actually find Paul healing a crippled man. And the crowds responded by falling to their knees in worship and proclaiming, the gods have come to us in the form of men. You remember? Paul and Barnabas heal a crippled man and the people fall to their knees and say, the gods have come to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes. To which Paul and Barnabas were like, get up. We're men. Then, just one verse later, in verse 19 of Acts 14, Luke writes that the Judaizers came in and stirred up the crowds to stone Paul and to drag him out of the city, which they did. He then finishes the section about Galatia in verses 21 through 23 of Acts 14, which read, When they, being Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, all of which were Galatian cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So in just a dozen or so verses, we come to learn that the region of Galatia was so volatile and it was so varied in its response to the gospel and that the Judaizers were active even in Paul and Barnabas' first visit to the region. So what is going on currently in Galatia had been going on from the very moment that Paul and Barnabas first entered into it, unto the point that Paul himself was stoned and dragged out of the city. It means that the Galatian believers had known and experienced the blessing of being in Christ, indwelled by the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they had also known what it meant to be persecuted for their faith in Christ. Likely by the same group of people who had persecuted Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul's question for them was a very direct and simple one. Have you gone through this whole joy-filled yet painful learning process for nothing? Have you suffered and experienced the joy of knowing Christ for nothing? Was it all in vain? Certainly the Galatians had not experienced a total loss of the spiritual blessings they had in Christ, but they were headed that way by continuing to believe what they had grown to believe from the Judaizers. And that is why Paul was writing to them with such great concern. Continuing in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So the primary question that we need to ask as believers, according to Paul, is this. Have we earned all that God has given us, or did we receive it by hearing as a gift of grace through faith in his Son? Is all that we have and all that God has done in and through us about I, or is it about he? Is it about me? Or is it about him? 
Scripture is often and abundantly clear that faith in Christ is a gift and it is a work of the Holy Spirit, which means that we do not get to boast in any of it. Not the byproduct of our faith or even faith itself. And that, of course, is the big problem with looking to the law or our works of self-righteousness. The problem with that is, is that law and works always become about us and not about him. So when we feel like we're not doing what we ought to do, we beat ourselves up or we wallow in guilt and in shame, or we simply wear ourselves out trying to do what we cannot do. And then when we feel like we're really nailing it, man, we're crushing it this week. We become proud and we become arrogant, while at the same time, because these two go hand in hand, condemning and looking down on those who aren't doing as well as we think we are. That's what happens when you elevate yourself is you condemn others in the process. And my friends, hear me. None of that, none of that has anything to do with Christ's life, death, or resurrection. If it did, as we finished with last week, Christ died for nothing. Jesus could have stayed home if it worked that way. My friends, faith has been, is, and always will be how one is made righteous in God's sight. Dating all the way back to the one that God first chose and ascribed righteousness to. Which leads us to verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham... And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So if you've been around Disciples Church, you know that a few months back, we spent some time in Genesis looking at the stories of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, we read what Paul is quoting here in verse 6. So God had made a promise to Abraham that he and his wife Sarah would have an heir. And that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And as unlikely as that may have seemed to Abraham, due to his age, his wife's age, and her barrenness to that point, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous. God told Abraham, you're going to have an heir, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, even though you're old, even though your wife is barren. And Abraham believed him, and God credited him with righteousness. Long before the law, long before Abraham was circumcised long before Abraham could have done anything to put God in his 
debt or cause God to choose or not choose him as his own. God made Abraham righteous. There was no law. There were no rituals. There was nothing that Abraham could have held to to say, I am righteous. Apart from God ascribing it to him because he believed God. God was the active participant and Abraham, like you and I, is the passive recipient. God is the active participant and we are the passive recipient. So Dave, all then I have to do is believe in God and I'm righteous? No. That is not what scripture says. It does not say Abraham believed in God. Does it? It doesn't say Abraham believed in God in a I believe he exists kind of way. Rather, it says he believed God. He believed God in a he said it, so I believe it kind of way. And those two things are very different. It is still relatively common in our day and age for someone to say, I believe in God. But I I think that's the wrong answer to what is probably a vague question. I mean, which God is this person referring to? Let's talk about him. And what do they think that it means to believe? Because I think most often when a person expresses such a sentiment, a sentiment like, I believe in God, what they mean is, I think that there's a higher being. And it really just becomes an intellectual assent to a God of their own making. But hear me, my friends. Let's assume the best. Even if the God that that person or you are referring to in making such a statement Even if that God is the God of the Bible, God is not impressed if you believe that he exists. God is not impressed if you believe that he exists. As we have often said, last week included, the book of James tells us that Satan and his demons believe that God exists, and in fact, they know it. They don't just believe it, they know it. So to say that you believe in God essentially puts you on the same level as a demon of hell. That's not great. But to believe God, to believe God, to know what he has said of himself, of his son, about you, and how he expects you to live, and then to trust him and surrender to him so completely that your entire life is transformed, God rewards such faith. God rewards such faith. And he calls you righteous. And he calls you righteous just as he did with Abraham. My friends, the righteous are those who say, by faith, God said it, I believe it, and by his spirit will endeavor to live accordingly. The righteous say, God said it, I believe it, and by his spirit will endeavor to live accordingly.
Abraham did as much. And all those who believe as he did are considered as much of a righteous son of God as he is, whether they be of Jewish blood or of Gentile blood. And that is what verse 8 is talking about. Think of this. In God's view, there are essentially three groups of people in the world. Three big groups of people. Unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles, and the church. The church being made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. But that's it. That's just those, those three groups. And within the church are those whose family lineage dates back to Abraham and those whose lineage is marked by people who never knew, loved, or followed God at all. That's what the church is made up of. People whose lineage goes back to Abraham in some sense and people who have no connection to him at all. But through faith in God's son, a new family and a new heritage has been established. Not in the blood of someone's ancestors, but in the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And what that means is that believing Gentiles are just as much sons and daughters of Abraham as a believing Jew. And all the blessings that belong to Abraham belong to them too. Because it was and it is and it always will be faith in God that makes us sons, daughters, and heirs of God. And God, through his Holy Spirit, will continue to relentlessly pursue unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles until their sonship is found in Christ through faith, not through their family origins. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist dealt with those who believed that their heritage and genetics were what made them right in the sight of God's eyes. And, and what he said unto them was this, And do not presume to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Do you really think that it's about the blood of Abraham? Do you think God is so impotent? Remember who and what Paul is arguing against here in Galatia. He is speaking against Judaizers who are saying unto Jew and Gentile alike, you must become a Jew. You must become an Israelite if you want to be saved and be part of the family of God. Because the Judaizers and those who followed them had forgotten God's promise to Abraham. That through his offspring, all nations be blessed. Through the offspring of Abraham, all nations be blessed. Not just Israel. And my friends, all nations have been blessed. And they will be blessed in and through the gospel that has gone out from Israel in the person of Jesus Christ and his disciples. That is how all nations have been and will be blessed. Because Israel's greatest blessing to the world is Jesus Christ himself. The promised offspring of Abraham who made a way through faith in him to be children of God. Regardless of who you are and regardless of what you have done. It's about Christ 
and his blood and being part of his family through faith. So my friends, like the men in Charles Spurgeon's story, every man, woman, and child born into this world is careening down roaring rapids and in need of great rescue. But in Christ, and in Christ alone, we have one who stands upon the shore offering us a rope. And if you have ever grabbed hold of the rope of faith that he died to provide you, why would you ever let go of it and take hold of anything else in its place? As Christians, we must hold fast to that which serves as our means of rescue, faith in God's Son, and reject that which ultimately leads to our doom, good works, whatever good means. And then, my friends, we must continue the same way we began. Jonathan talked about justification last week. Just as if I'd never sinned, it comes to you by faith, and then you grow and you mature and you finish the same way that you began. By grace and through faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And in the same way that the first man would not have let go of the rope halfway between the shoreline, believing that he could save himself from that point on, so too we must hold tight to faith in Christ alone until we are pulled safely ashore. You don't let go of the rope. You hold fast. We do not begin by grace and through faith in Christ and then finish through obedience to a law that never belonged to us in the first place or that we could never accomplish. It is all grace, it is all faith, and it's nothing else from start to finish. And there is one gospel, and there is one triune God, and no one else. So let us accept and proclaim no other. Hold fast, Disciples Church, to the faith that God has given you in his son, trusting that Jesus is already and always holding fast to you. He is already and always holding fast to you. And he promises to carry you safely home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you our hearts and worship this morning for the incredible gift of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and for the gift of faith that we would believe in him. We confess, God, that we have sinned against you in more ways than we can imagine and count. And we deserve death for those sins. But you came to us, Emmanuel. You lived for us. And you died in our place and you gave us eternal life in the person of your son. In him, and in him alone, we have been made righteous sons and daughters of the king. And Father, for those within the sound of my voice who remain spiritually dead and rebels to your will, would you give them the gift of faith in Christ by the hearing of your word today and the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, for those of us who have already received that gift, 
would you remind us how we were saved and then help us remain steadfast in that salvation. Our life in and with you that has begun and will finish by that same faith. Assure us, God, of your loving hold on us and your promise to bring us to where you are for all eternity. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.